Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is Dan Taylor. My name is John Micton. Join us twice a month at the International Schools Podcast as we have conversations with international school leaders, educators, and entrepreneurs working and engaging in the world of international schools and education. And finally, just to say a huge thank you to our sponsor, Asa for Education, for making this podcast happen. Now on to the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the International School Podcast. I'm your co-host, John Micton. Dan is away. Uh, again, you know, busy, busy time for everybody, as always. And we thank you for your comments. There's been a lot of uh, comments on uh, various podcasts, and we really appreciate the feedback. And of course, suggestions, you know, people have been messaging me and saying, hey, you should think of this or that. So don't hesitate. But I'm very excited because uh, I have somebody that I've been following for quite a while and I always get so inspired. And I know in my last professional situation, I used a lot of his resources, especially the four shift protocol and really transformed our team in the way we approach the integration of digital uh, learning and digital literacy, more in maybe appeasing, and maybe appeasing is the wrong word, but kind of calming the, the anxiety level that sometimes people have when they're wanting to integrate or where they feel they have to integrate. And no better person to talk about that than uh, Dr. Scott McLeod. So Scott, such a pleasure to have you. So nice to see you. You've been really busy. If anybody's following Scott on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn, he is traveling and working and supporting uh, teachers and school districts. It's just phenomenal. So we feel really lucky to have you, hopefully a little respite before you head out again. Thanks for all the kind words, John. It's nice to be here. So Scott, you have two books that uh, many of our audience are familiar. I think the one that most people might be familiar with uh, internationally is Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning, which really engage the reader and to think about, you know, how do you harness technology in a meaningful way and really making it student-centric and giving us some really concrete uh, questions and uh, dispositions and approaches that very likely often were uh, different from other frameworks. And the sentence that always jumps out to me is, how, uh, how can I help you? How can I get you there? A very supportive, non kind of, uh, I'm not in control, but I'm here to support you. Maybe we can talk a bit about that. And then, of course, your latest book, Leadership for Deeper Learning, which is another excellent read. And if uh, audience members have not read either, I recommend you do that. The show notes has a lot of resources Scott has kindly shared out. So, Scott, talk to us about maybe why this approach that was very different from, I think, what other frameworks like the Samer, the TPAC, you really almost did a shift in some ways. You went with it a different way. Why? Thanks, John. So, you know, the book Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning has been out a few years now. We're very grateful for the response that it's gotten. It's a little bit of a misnomer. The publisher put the word technology in there. It's really more of a deeper learning redesign book. Um, you know, but when you work with publishers, sometimes they insert the word tech because they think it'll hit a certain market. Um, you know, I think the book is in the four shifts protocol that goes with it, which is free, by the way, um, is really intended to solve a design problem. Right? I think you noticed you noted that some of the frameworks we have for technology integration, for example, like SAMR and TPAC and 
you know, some of the others, they're very general, like they're meant to sort of give people a sense of where they might live on a continuum, but they don't really tell people what to change. And so, you know, you and I have both worked with educators for a really long time, and you know that they need some very concrete support and scaffolding. Um, and so like any good protocol should, the four shifts protocol is intended to give some very concrete, specific look fors and think abouts that you can actually shift on or pivot on, right? And nobody likes the word pivot after the pandemic. Um, so, you know, instead of just saying, make a generalized uh, guess about where you live on some generic continuum, we're saying things like, well, if you really care about student agency, here's nine really concrete questions you can ask yourself and you can shift on if you desire, right? So like, for example, who's the primary driver of the doc time? Is it you or is it, you know, the students? And if it's more you, then how could you redesign that so it was more students? Um, you know, who's selecting what is being learned and how it's being learned? Who's the primary user of the technology? So these are all very concrete questions that you can answer yourself for, answer for yourself for a lesson or a unit, right? And you can move toward. Similarly, you know, if we're talking about real world authentic work, we're asking questions like, are you asking students to create a real world product or a performance? Is there an authentic audience? Are you making a contribution to, you know, the world outside the classroom walls in the school building? And these are all very concrete things that people can wrap their head around. And I think, you know, the reason that the four shifts protocol has been taking off so quickly over the last couple of years is because A, it's specificity. Um, B, it's really easy to use, right? We can get educators up and running in a couple hours. They can kind of understand how to work it. Um, there's lots of flexibility in the protocol in terms of it's a, it's got a low floor, but a, a high ceiling, right? You can go, you can use it in lots of rich, robust ways, uh, particularly if you're sitting side by side with other teachers or a good coach. And it also um, is a nice bridge to the complex, the more complex work of PBL, project-based learning, right? And I think what we see a lot of international schools and schools here in the States trying to do is they know that they want kids to have more robust learning opportunities, but they're often asking relatively traditional teachers to make a giant leap to like these four-week PBL projects. And that's a really big jump. Whereas the protocol says, let's make those shifts in smaller steps, right? Instead of asking you to, you know, blow up your classroom for the next three and a half weeks, why don't you take that thing you're doing next Tuesday and start making some tweaks to it that start to build your capacity as an educator and your students' capacity as well, because they're not used to learning in some of these ways either. And those smaller shifts add up and are a nice bridge to, you know, the full-blown gold standard PBL world that a lot of schools are trying to get to. But Scott, I think that's a really important point you bring up is so often when we bring change about to school setting, to educators that are very busy, if you're in a classroom, in a primary classroom, middle school or upper school, you're really busy. There's a lot coming at you. And so often that, you know, there's like, oh, we're going to go to PBL, project-based learning. What I really like, and I think what resonated with the people that we were working with was that it's really small incremental change. And there's the option just to do one. You have those nine questions, but you don't have to do all of them. You could just do one. And was that in reaction to what you were seeing happening in school districts that you were working? Maybe some pushback about that process of change? And you said, we have to go about this a different way. Well, yeah, because I think, you know, we have all these, you know, big visions about what we want student learning to be, but we don't build in the scaffolded structures and supports necessary to help people get there. We just kind of throw people to the deep end of the pool, and like go swim. And then, you know, a lot of them don't. 
um, because again, it's too big of a leap for them. So I think, you know, as a school leadership professor who thinks a lot about systems, we have to think about what are pathways and, and easy on ramps that help people get moving, that have early wins, they can see, you know, um, quick successes, and they can then build on those, right? And then as the, you know, the boulder gets some momentum, right? Then we start shaking off the moss of the old system and we start, you know, moving in some new directions. And But I think there's an intentionality to this work as well, right? Like if you just say to a teacher, well, if you just make a tiny tweak in your instruction, you know, next Thursday, then you're good. Uh, well, that's not quite it either, right? Because we want an intentionality to build these, these skills and these capacities on top of each other so that eventually, you know, over a few years, the student learning experience starts to transform itself. And we don't have to do that all at once. We're not asking, you know, we're not just throwing you off the cliff, but we also have a desired destination we're trying to get to, right? And so we need to keep leaning into making those shifts bigger and more substantive over time. When you work with groups of teachers, uh, I imagine sometimes you go in a room and you notice that there are going to be a lot, there's a lot of resistance. What is it that you're doing or when you engage with them with the four shifts protocol where suddenly they say, oh, hold on here, I can engage with that? Because so often people, whenever you present anything and there are 100 people in a room or even 20 or five in a classroom, there's always an initial guardedness about engaging with anything. Sure. Why do you think and what have you noticed th that shift, you know, and, and it's the four shifts protocol. The word is just wonderful in that way, too. <laughs> um, so I think the best way to learn the protocol is just to start redesigning with it right away. Right. So I usually start with Section C student agency because it seems to be the easiest one for people to wrap their head around. And so, you know, teachers may have an initial gardenness um, or reservation about the work that we're trying to do. But you know, within 12 minutes, we're already starting to redesign a lesson in concrete ways that give kids more voice and choice and some more control and ownership. And they start to see that it's actually not very hard, right? And so again, those quick wins, those early successes are really critical, right? We can say, look, it's, and, and you know, and we keep saying over and over again, it's not that every single activity that you do with kids has to be really high in student agency. The protocol is an if-then tool if you want to get more agency and voice and choice into some of your instruction, then section C is probably going to be pretty helpful to you. Just think about when and where and what to redesign, right? And look, in 12 minutes, we took this activity and we started moving it in some interesting directions. And so if you're trying to get some agency to happen with kids, notice that it didn't take us very long to start finding ways to make that work. Yeah. And, and I think it's those small increments that are so important. Your second book, again, uses the word harnessing. You are, is that, again, your publisher deciding that? Or is that really you saying, hold on, the harnessing leadership? Talk a bit about this idea of harnessing. Oh, so you mean leadership for deeper learning. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, you know, Leadership for Deeper Learning is uh, a different kind of book, John, because, you know, again, I'm a leadership guy. And so we can spend all the time we want around uh, working with teachers and instructional coaches to redesign day-to-day -day instruction, but those people are embedded in systems, right? And so the Leadership for Deeper Learning book, which is my latest one, is really focused on what are those leadership behaviors and organizational support structures that surround this instructional work that we're trying to make happen. And I think, you know, you mentioned the word harnessing. I think 
one of the things we see in these deeper learning schools all around the world is that they do a fantastic job of harnessing the energy and the enthusiasm and the desire of teachers to do right by kids. Um, and often, you know, it's not teachers that are the problem. When we try to think about making learning experiences different for children, it's the systems in which they're embedded and the leaders that maybe are trying to quash them for whatever reason, right? Because of their own fear or control needs or whatever. So the leadership for Deeper Learning Book, what we did is we identified 30 schools around the country. Uh, most of them were in the States, but there are a few, you know, schools internationally. Um, and our basic driving question was, you know, what do you do as the leader of an innovative school that's different from your counterpart down the road, right, at a more traditional school? And it was fantastic, right? Like uh, they told us, they showed us, we interviewed every principal, we did site visits for 28 of the schools before, you know, the pandemic shut down travel. And, you know, it's a very concrete book like Harnessing Tech for Deeper Learning, but it's on the leadership side. So every chapter ends with key leadership behaviors, key support structures, um, and lots of really rich, robust narrative about what kids are doing, what educators are doing, what the leaders are doing, you know, to make sort of this deeper learning work. And it's, you know, it's a fen it's phenomenal when you walk out of one of these schools, you wish your kid went there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Were you surprised? So you went to talk to 28 different schools uh, internationally and mostly in the United States. Were you surprised and you did you pick those schools because they were innovative or yes. you went, oh, you already knew ahead of time that there was a level of innovation. Was Is there a commonality between all of them or are they all so very different? Uh, we tried to pick a wide range of schools. Um, they're mostly secondary, and I can talk a little bit about that uh, and what my plan is around that angle in just a minute. Um, but everything from traditional public schools, charter schools, independent or private schools, international schools, like we really tried to get a mix, uh, even a couple of places that might not technically be a school or almost not a school, <laughs> right? They're more studios. Um, so, and just try to pick sort of a wide range of things that we know were happening, you know, that were pretty interesting, just so we could kind of get a diverse spread of experiences and context. And so when you went to these schools, did you had a set of questions you were trying to kind of get out of these leaders? What was their magic sauce, if you want to call it such? And, <laughs> and do right. some of them, did some of them not even realize that they were being innovative? It was just second nature or how purposeful were these, were these you know, leaders, uh, had they really sat down and said, okay, I'm going to, my why is this, my when, how, what, or was it something just organic, something in, in the water, if you want to even say right. it like that? Uh, uh, yeah, thanks for <laughs> So we interviewed every principal before we did a site visit. So we had some basic knowledge and understanding of how the school operated and what it was trying to do before we visited. And then usually our site visits were, you know, follow-ups where we dug deeper on things we wanted to know more about. We got to walk the halls. We got to visit classrooms and see teachers and kids in action. They also told us interesting things, you know, beyond what the principal had shared. But, uh, John, there's incredible intentionality in a deeper learning school um, because, you know, they're trying to create a learning experience for kids that is very different from most of the schools around them, right? And so they have to think very hard about, 
what structures do we need to put in place? What kind of systems do we need to make, you know, to give kids lots of agency in their learning? Because, you know, we're so used to have them having almost none, right? So, you know, they think a lot about design and about structures and about systems and about empowerment. And, you know, I've, as I've said to people before, you know, a school that is designed primarily around factual recall and procedural regurgitation is a very different place than a school that's designed to prepare kids who are thinkers and problem solvers, right? And so uh, the deeper learning, thinking, problem solving school doesn't just happen by magic, right? Like you literally have to um, be very purposeful about creating new spaces and new ways of being and new ways of thinking and having different kind of conversations with parents and kids about what you're trying to make happen. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned the secret sauce. I love that phrase. Um, I think the secret sauce for these schools is a, a really strong commitment to um, empowering kids to drive a lot of their own learning in meaningful ways that are interconnected with the community around them, right? So, these, right? So they're really trying to create difference makers and, and really empowered, you know, change makers and learners. Um, and that, and I think the second part of the secret sauce is they're doing the exact same thing with their teaching staff, right? So when you talk to these teachers, these teachers have really high levels of trust and efficacy and agency themselves to design learning experiences that look very different from more traditional teachers who often maybe would like to do that kind of work with kids, but feel beat down by the system that they're in. Now you refer, and as you're describing these uh, profiles, is this always this idea of design, intentionality, and structure. And so often, you know, you hear stories of amazing principles, and it's really driven around the personality, the energy, kind of the, you know, the rock starness of that individual. But what I'm hearing, you're saying, hold on here, there has to be a systematic structure, and you have to design it in a way that actually if that person's not there, that the, the intentionality and that culture can continue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, for some of these schools, like some of these charter schools or these independent schools, you know, the founder's vision often is really strong and carries it for the first X number of years. But, you know, nobody stays in that role forever. You know, they retire, you know, they get ill, they move on to another adventure, you know, whatever. Um, and so the question then is, how do you build sustainability of the learning model and the school model so that it doesn't fade into something else, right? Um, and so I think one of the things we see in these schools, going back to this idea of teacher agency, is that we also see a lot of distributed leadership practices where, you know, the person who is theoretically the head of the school actually is giving up a lot of control and power to teaching staff, other people in the building, kids themselves, families, right? Because they recognize that this has to be a model that we co-own and we share together, right? So that if something, you know, happens to me for whatever reason, um, that the model that, you know, we have widespread buy-in and ownership and somebody who's already had practice owning pieces of this can just step in and keep it rolling. You say, uh, and you mentioned this idea of leaders being willing to give up control or distributive leadership. What would you say is the hesitancy of a lot of leaders wanting to do that? Is it that they don't know or is it just a, a sense of fear 
and maybe feeling, well, if I let go, then I don't know what's going on. Right. I, I think it's a whole bunch of stuff, right? Um, you know, some of it is just very natural control needs or fear or anxiety around what might happen if I don't, you know, keep the thumb on, you know, current activities. Um, here in the States, of course, we have some pretty strong accountability measures that people feel beholden to, right, that sort of drive some of these conversations. So, and that's true in international schools too, right? Like we let um, test scores um, on whatever your test is, right, or certain curricular expectations sort of shape the way we think about what we're trying to make happen with kids. And I think one of the things we're finding in deeper learning schools is that they're saying that we might actually share the same goal. We might actually also be trying to have kids do really well in AP classes and in the IB program and on the SAT and the ACT or the state test or whatever. And we just think there's a different way to get there, right? And so the way is not creating a very highly structured, rigid, regimented, you know, curriculum that might even be scripted, right? They're doing some of that in the U.S., um, but really figuring out how do we lean into kids and educators' interests and passions? How do we activate that natural sense of learning and joy around learning that we know we have, right? And, and we're going to lean into interests and passions and meaning-making and sense-making. And guess what? The curriculum will follow, right? And we'll get some really good stuff, which is very different from saying, you know what? We've got this really diverse group of humans in the building, and we're basically going to ignore that diversity, and we're going to make everybody do the exact same thing at the exact same pace at the exact same time because we're trying to get to the exact same outcome on this exact same assessment, right? And the research on these deeper learning schools is fascinating because they cover less content, but their students tend to do as well or better on these standardized assessments of co content coverage than educators in traditional schools. Um, because they're going deep on the stuff that really matters. They have a really strong sense conceptually of what's happening in their curriculum area. And they've gotten to go deep, hands-on and active, right, in, in that way so that they really get to wrestle with things in a different way than, hey, I just did some practice problems or a worksheet or whatever. Do you think the profile of these leaders and the profile of these teachers in these deeper learning schools have they experienced deeper learning in their own education? And that's why they're so passionate. Is it something that you have to experience prior? Or is it just they're looking at, at, at what's in front of them and saying, this doesn't work anymore. What can we do? So are they kind of going ahead and said, let me learn how to do this differently? Or is it just something that they experienced prior? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think more of the latter, right? I think we have a few uh, educators who came up in a more maybe progressive, you know, school setting and understand what some of this looks like. Um, but for the most part, um, a lot of these schools attract the disenchanted educators, you know, classroom teachers, coaches and leaders from other buildings who are like, you know, I really uh, am struggling in this current, you know, rigid, regimented system in which kids are bored and apathetic and actively pushing back against. I just want to liberate kids and their learning to do some really interesting work. And by the way, we can also maybe positively impact our community while we're at it. And so they start looking around, like, what are my options? And then they find out that, you know, there's a school, you know, 10 minutes away that's doing some really cool stuff in their city. And like, oh, I want to go try that. Right. Um, and so, uh you know, a lot of these people are coming over because, like you said, they're disenchanted with their current context and they're trying to make something different happen with children. 
And were these principals and leaders and teachers aware of the different schools that were deeper learning schools? Did they know that there was this, or were you kind of saying, hey, by the way, in the state next door, in the country next door, there is another school like that. How aware are they, or do, or do they feel very alone sometimes? Oh, uh, that's a great question. So we have some deeper learning school networks. Um, so for example, the Big Picture Learning Network, the New Tech Network, uh, the High Tech High Network, uh, EL, Expeditionary Learning, EdVisions. These are all networks of deeper learning schools that are either national or international. Um, and so if you belong to one of those networks, you are aware of and interact with educators and other buildings in the network. What I'm finding, for example, here in Colorado is that we probably have 40 to 60 really innovative deeper learning schools across the state but they don't know about each other, right? Wow. So they, they often do feel very alone because in their local area, you know, we, we're in a city of 150,000 or whatever, um, we're the only ones doing this work. So we're a great alternative to these more traditional, you know, school environments around us, but who do we learn from? Who do we interact with? Who do we, uh, you know, grow professionally? Who will stretch us? So one of my goals, um, is to not only you know help people connect across the country so uh but also here in colorado is to create sort of a colorado network of innovative schools you know including you know where i can start telling their stories where we can have an annual conference where they come together and share with each other and be like oh that's really cool let's try some of that um right and so that work is really important um Right now, I think the best source, if you're really interested in innovative deeper learning, is the Getting Smart website because they profile interesting schools all the time. And that's where we got a lot of our schools for the book from. But, you know, as we put our 30 schools together, we had a lot to choose from. What we found was that even the people who participated with us then read our book because they were in it and they were like, wow, I didn't know all these other cool schools were out there. Like, I want to come visit some. Right. Um, yeah. And I think it's so important, this shared learning. And I know in international schools, sometimes certain educators, they're in countries that maybe, uh, especially that they're, you know, maybe the only international school or there's just a few, that idea of shared learning and, and cross-pollination and professional development can be so enriching. And I think one thing that we learned through COVID is that we can actually learn from all, everybody in the world uh, as we're doing right now, just by uh, being on an online virtual environment. Yeah, absolutely. And John, you know, I think one thing that I'll say about international schools is that in large metro areas, you often have multiple international schools. And, you know, what we often see, just like here in the States, is that there's a sort of a, like a flagship international school yeah. for the city or maybe even the country. Um, and then all the other international schools in the area are trying to emulate and be as close to that one as possible, right? But what I would say here is that there's actually an opportunity to do some real interesting market differentiation within the metro area, right? So rather than trying to be a, um, you know, less funded, you know, less resourced clone of the flagship, why don't you offer something different? Um, and there's, and you might be surprised that there's actually a real appetite from a number of families and kids for a different kind of school model, right? And I think what we see that play out over and over again in metro areas in the States where instead of trying to, you know, be a cookie cutter, you know, copy of, you know, the big dog, 
independent school, they're saying, we're going to offer something that's very unique. Your kid's going to have a very different kind of learning experience rather than just, you know, a shadow version of, the, you know, the big dog. Um, and it's going to be great. Like, come over here and watch what these kids are doing. Um, and so I think there's an opportunity there for international schools if they choose to lean into it. I think that's a really interesting point you bring up because there are, you know, cities, large metropolitan areas all over the world. And there is this flagship school. And then you see two, three other schools opening up and trying to do the same. And but because that that's kind of the known quantity. And if it works for them, maybe we can get some of the crumbs or we can get some of that aspect. When you're talking to these deeper learning schools, I'm wondering what is the connection with industry and the way business has changed? We know that the business world is changing rapidly. Uh, startups and you look at a lot of young entrepreneurs the way they're approaching learning and engagement. Did you make connections? Is that something you were looking at? Or what's the relationship between these deeper learning schools and maybe the new way people are working? I'm thinking the global digital nomads, a lot of the startups, uh, those kind of things, you know, green companies. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, as we look around at our work context, corporate or otherwise, um, we're seeing a couple things happen. One is we're seeing the flattening of hierarchies, right? So we're not having 17 layers of the organization before you have to get approval from, you know, the assistant to the CEO or whatever. We're devolving ownership and agency down to the lower levels of the organizations. And we're trying to create smaller work teams that are more nimble, um, that can make decisions and be more adaptive on the fly, right? And so on. And I think we're the kind of work that happens in these deeper learning schools mirrors that in a lot of ways, right? So if you are flattening your corporate organization and you're expecting people closer to the front lines to be able to make decisions, to allocate resources quickly in different ways, to respond more adaptively to market needs and so on, you have to have workers who are comfortable doing that, right? And guess what? It's not just tell me what to do workers. It's workers who are comfortable with agency and ownership and collaborating with a diverse set of other people. Um, they're used to the idea that they can be difference makers and change makers and uh, impact makers, right? And so these deeper learning schools are fantastic incubators and laboratories to prepare this kind of future employee, right? Or, or I should say current employee, right? Because they turn out students who know how to wrestle with complex problems, who know how to lean into difficulties and challenges rather than away, who are not saying, just tell me what to do because otherwise I get anxious, right? Um, and that's the perfect sort of, you know, graduate for a startup, for a flattened corporation, for a multinational company who really needs people who are comfortable with collaboration and working with diversity and so on, right? So these schools are ideal fits in many ways for sort of the direction that companies and organizations are going. And one thing that, you know, during COVID, there was all this, there was a lot of talk and articles that, okay, we've had COVID, now we're going to do school differently. And there was a lot of talk about it. And somehow, you know, we were online, we were re-looking at the curriculum because suddenly we had to pivot to a virtual environment. And we're realizing that some of the things that we were doing really don't work. And especially when you go online, so there was this whole narrative that school was going to be different. Has it changed or have we just gone back to our old habits? Right. So I always say that the number one um, challenge to transforming school for a global innovation society is not resources or the tests or external mandates or funding or any of that. 
it's our mindset of what school should look like, right? And those mindsets of what school is, right, are deeply, deeply embedded in our psyches. And so you can go up to anybody on any street in any country and just say the word school and a whole host of images come to them right about what school is and it's rooted in what their experience looked like what their parents and grandparents experience looked like and all of a sudden these deeper learning schools are coming around and saying we're talking about something very different here right um and you know we're not talking about kids as passive recipients we're not talking about teaching as a transmission model with kids then regurgitating um we're talking about empowering kids to be difference makers they're out in the community doing cool stuff they have lots of ownership we're using tech in interesting ways rather than controlling kids with tech and so on right and that blow that really messes with people's minds around what school should look like um so after pandemic no we haven't you know, try to really significantly change how we do school, mostly because of our mindsets of what school should be. Those mindsets are now being reinforced by political messaging around learning loss, right, and catching kids up and test scores are down and whatever. Um, and I think what's been interesting for me to observe here in the States, at least, is that um, kids still have a lot of trauma that they're carrying with them from the pandemic that is going unaddressed in school settings. Um, educators are also carrying a lot of trauma and so are families. And yet these learning loss conversations are pushing even more heavily into traditional school models under the catch up language, right? We gotta catch up, we gotta catch up. We're gonna lean in more heavily into traditional schooling practices because we gotta get those scores up and learning loss and blah, blah, blah instead of recognizing that what kids really need right now is they need a deep breath, they need a lot of care, they need a lot of relationships, they need uh, a sense of agency and ownership that they probably didn't have during the pandemic, right? Because they were stuck at home and isolated and, and anxious. Um, and it's that sort of that foundation of care and relationships that is then gonna allow us to bridge back to the kind of teaching and learning that we need to make happen. And I see way too many schools in the US that because of the learning loss rhetoric are diving immediately and accelerating and leaning hard into academic processes without all the other stuff that surrounds it. And then they're fighting with their kids all the time and it's not working, but they don't know what to do differently. And these deeper learning schools just operate in a different modality and they're having many fewer of those problems. Would, is learning loss, uh, is COVID a scapegoat for learning loss? Uh, you know, I think, I don't know about that. You know, I mean, we had a pretty substantial disruptions in people's lives <laughs> um, and academically. Yeah, and, so, know, but I, I'm wondering this because this learning loss na of narrative seems to have really percolated up and it's almost like, okay, now we have to change everything and catch up so we get these better scores. And I'm just wondering, was that going to happen anyway if we hadn't had COVID or is it really the, the pandemic because it was so traumatic and so unexpected and unlived before that there is some valid validity to the idea of uh, learning loss? Uh, yeah, you know, I think test scores have dipped everywhere. Um, you know, we can have a whole different podcast episode about whether those test scores mean anything, how valid we should treat them and so on. Um, you know, I think for me, the bigger question is what kind of outcomes do we want for kids and how do we assess those? And a lot of the outcomes we want for kids, like 
Are you a good human being? Are you creative? Are you a great collaborator? Can you go out and make a dent in the world, <laughs> right? Are you a good thinker and problem solver? None of those are captured in these assessments whose scores have dipped that we allegedly care about. So yes, we want kids to know stuff. Yes, we want kids to be able to do stuff. But that is not context-free work, right? And I think that as long as our conversations around learning loss and assessments and scores and catching up are focused primarily on these numbers, on assessments of relatively low-level learning, right, then we're missing the bigger picture of, you know, the fact that we're supposed to be preparing kids to go out in the world and be successful and be happy and, you know, impact the communities in positive ways. And none of that shows up in those test scores, but it's getting lost because we're so focused on this one measure. Mm, exactly. What do you think was the silver lining of COVID for educators? What, what are you noticing as you talk to educators and school leaders? What, what did, you know, the, the, for anything, there's a positive, there's a negative, there's an opportunity. What was, what was the opportunity that maybe now we've gained because of that experience? I, I think for many educators and school systems, we realized for the first time in maybe a long time that we could actually shift pretty quickly if we needed to. Um, you know, there's the old saw in school leadership circles that schools change incredibly slowly and no matter what initiative you introduce, it's going to take three to five years before you even start to see glimmers of success. And you know what? During the pandemic, every school everywhere pivoted really fast, right? And it wasn't perfect and it was messy and it was stressful and, and, and nonetheless, we did lots of things really differently, really quickly. And, you know, I think in our quest to return back to normal <laughs> as soon as possible, we have for already forgotten that energy, right? And, and I know that a lot of leaders were trying to build <coughs> that as they came out of the pandemic and just say, look, remember how fast we moved when we really needed to? What if we identified some things that are really important to us as a building, as a system, as a community, right? Could we move a little faster on some stuff? And again, recognize that it might be messy and it might cause a little bit of discomfort, but in the end, we gained a lot of new skills. We learned a lot of new tools, right? We had different ways of interacting with kids and families, and a lot of those were very successful, right? Um, and so how do we build off that positive momentum in ways that work? And so I think that's probably the biggest silver lining for me out of the pandemic is that we showed ourselves that we could move more quickly if we want to. And I think now the challenge is in every building and system is how do we harness that energy and keep that idea going rather than just simply reverting back. And why do you think schools revert back? They've, you know, they had their two years or however long different. I mean, there are some countries where COVID is still, you know, if you think of our colleagues in China, there's right. still a lot uh, happening there. Why did, is that because that was the familiar, that was the safe place? Yeah. Or was it because it was like, okay, we kind of were innovative for two years. Now we're done, we're tired. <laughs> now we get back to the old ways. Right, well, part of it is mindset. Again, never undermine the, the power of our mindset of what school should look like. Some of it is indeed exhaustion, right? Like people are just tired. And even though it's, you know, we're kind of emerging out in most places, uh, not everywhere, like you said, but in most places, um, that comfortable, that familiar might take a little less energy from us. And we'd like to just rest a little bit, which is very natural. Um, so, yeah, lots of reasons. Uh, might be external policy mandates around scores or, you know, what we're trying to catch kids up on. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
no matter whatever we have, you know, high bursts of energy, we also need periods of rest. Um, I just hope that we don't forget some of what we've done um, and that it is possible if we choose to. Absolutely. And, and Scott, you know, you, uh, the pandemic also kind of amplified some of the bigger issues that we're dealing with. And one that keeps coming back is this issue of climate change. And, you know, you hear a lot of younger people, uh, especially I have two children in their early 20s, and there is a certain amount of anxiety about how are we going to tackle this? Have you noticed the, that also amongst educators and schools? saying that we really have to focus on this a bit like the pandemic where it's a non-negotiable we have to come up with a solution are you seeing that happening more or is it still kind of on the back burner um unfortunately here in the u.s we have a lot of political factors that are working against uh uh, schools leaning into some climate change related conversations you know i think this is one of the places where international schools are really leading um the way is that, you know, I think about, for example, some of the things that are happening around the sustainable development goals from the United Nations and how uh, a lot of international schools and teachers have leaned into that work with kids. Um, climate change, obviously, is a huge part of many of those SDGs. Uh, here in the U.S., when I mention, you know, SDGs and climate change to most people, you know, other than the, um, you know, the wistful science teacher who wishes that she could teach about it more. Um, we mostly sort of leave that on the back burner in our school curricula, unfortunately. And most of that is probably political. And, and you bring up this word politics and you've brought it up often in, in the context of the United States education system and teachers. And that seems one of the things that has a real impact on schools in the United States is the politics, because the way things are structured, boards are elected and politicians are connected to that. Is, is this something that really continues to be a real issue in the sense that maybe it's one of the blockages or one of the hesitancies of people trying to be innovative because of this political narrative that's overlooking them? Yes, absolutely. And so um, that plays out in a couple ways. Uh, the first one is just to recognize that any school environment is inherently political. So even in an international school community, right, which is smaller than, say, you know, a state or a nation, um, you know, there are intense politics within that community. So yeah. I mean, let's don't, let's don't, let's don't, don't pretend otherwise. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the United States, um, these political narratives impact schools in a variety of ways, right? So, you know, um, in, international schools stand relatively independent from perhaps the city or nation in which they're embedded often, right? And they can kind of pick their own curriculum. In the U.S., right, if you're a public school, for instance, you don't have that flexibility. You have to implement the state curriculum that your state has decided on. So if your state is saying that you can teach certain things or that you can't teach certain things or that you can't talk about certain topics, right, then that shapes, you know, state approved curriculum and state approved textbooks and state improved, you know, instruction and teachers can get disciplined or terminated if they, you know, talk about things they're not supposed to. So all of that has sort of a um, real big impact on what 
instruction looks like. But the politics also plays out in other ways. So during the earlier days of the pandemic here in the States, we treated teachers as heroes because they were stepping up even as their own children were sick and their own families were ill or dying. And they were leaning into still trying to somehow provide for the children in their community and make sure that they got an education. And we really leaned into that hero narrative. And somewhere along the way in the States, in a lot of communities, teachers became villains, right? They became villains because they were advocating for their own safety. They were advocating for the safety of their own, of uh, their children and their families. They were asking people to slow down a little bit because, um, you know, people were eager to get their kids back into school um, during the pandemic. And they might've thought that it was a little too quick because of the percentages in their community. Um, they were advocating for some different kind of learning and teaching happening because everybody was exhausted and somehow the narrative flipped and they became villains. They became obstructionists. Um, they became the people to blame because kids were stressed and angry and not successful academically. Um, and what we're seeing now as a result of all that political narrative, right, you know, is you can only beat up on teachers for so long before they've had enough. Right. And so as teachers are saying these kids have extra needs as they return back from the pandemic and they're not being met, you know, there's a lot of stress in the building. We're all burnt out and overloaded and exhausted. Please, school system, help us address some of this. And the school systems are too brittle or fragile to accommodate that. Parents are hollering at them. The politicians are hammering at them because they're trying to make talking points, you know, politically, whatever. And we're seeing these massive waves of teacher shortages and departures because they've just had enough, right? So now the biggest problem in American schools is probably not learning loss and trying to catch kids up. It's, do we have enough bodies to fill all our classrooms, right? And, and we just have record teacher shortages all over the states um, because these narratives have continued to portray education as, you know, the problem, not the solution. And we're seeing that also manifest itself in teacher prep programs. You know, the number of um, young people who say they want to be teachers these days is down about a third to 40% from what it used to be even a decade ago. So that's incredible. Those are some huge numbers. That's really, wow. That's really sobering. Scott, we're going to come into 2023 and I'm sure you have all kinds of projects ahead. What are your hopes for teachers in 2023? What are you thinking, you know, thinking about all the different groups that you've supported and interacted with? What are what is your hope for what 2023 might look like for educators? You know, my biggest hope for classroom teachers always is that they're embedded within schools that really allow them to try some interesting things with kids, right? And I and I think most of the time, you know, our frontline classroom educators are never the problem. They always want to do right by children. They're in that profession for the reason of doing right by children, right? And they've got really interesting ideas uh, for whatever reason the system can't seem to make happen, right? And so, you know, just like these deeper learning schools really liberate and empower kids to do interesting work, I, my hope for educators is always the same, that, that they can find a school and a leadership team that really just leans into the yes, not the no, and says, you've got that interesting idea, you want to run with it, you want to try some cool stuff with kids, like, yeah, let's try and make that happen. Let's see where that goes, right? And unfortunately, we just don't have enough of those schools and enough of those environments. But that's always my hope for teachers. And I think that idea of always saying yes is so important. Nothing's worse to see a fantastic, innovative teacher that finally says, you know what, 
I'm not putting my hand up anymore because it keeps saying no. And then that that's really sad when you see that. And, and one thing that, you know, I always, and I think the pandemic highlighted it, it's amazing how everyday teachers come into the classroom, whatever's happened in their personal life or whatever politics might be in the building, they're there in front of their kids and they're doing the best for them. And I think that is something that requires immense motivation and integrity. And I think that's something that I always find so inspiring when you walk into a classroom. Scott, thank you so much. Any, what are any projects coming up that you're willing to share? Is there another book in, in the works or is that a secret? Yes, no, I've got four big things I'm leaning into in 2023. Uh, the first one is this community in Colorado where I'm going to try and bring all our deeper learning schools together so they can start yes. networking and learning from each other. That's going to be called Colorado Innovates. I'm really excited about that. I'm starting two new podcasts. One of them uh, is called Redesigning for Deeper Learning. We're literally going to redesign lessons on the fly on the podcast, right? Wow. So, so people, people come in with their lesson and then you yeah. help them redesign it. Yeah, and we went like yeah, like a live coaching session toward deeper learning, right? So wow. you know, a middle school science teacher at an international school could sign up for an episode and be like, "Here's what, how I've always done this activity in science class," and we're like, "All right, cool, let's bounce it around. Let's see if we can give kids some more agency. You know, focus on some real good thinking and problem solving. You know, some real world work, whatever." So, and it's going to be on the fly. It's going to be awesome. Um, so that's coming out in the spring. Um, we're also uh, going to start a podcast called Leader Talk, um, which is going to interview principals of deeper learning schools. Uh, so continuing the work that we did in the Leadership for Deeper Learning book and turning it into a podcast where we say, look, you know, help us unpack what happens at your school so that other leaders can learn from you. So that's initiative three. And my fourth uh big project is I'm on sabbatical in the spring and I'm really excited about this because um, so much of the deeper learning conversation is focused on secondary schools. Um, and there's reasons for that, right? Because we can talk about things like internships and place-based service learning and community impact and capstone experiences, and they might have transportation and whatever, right? But we also know younger kids can do this work, too. So uh, we are now empty nesters. So my wife and the dog and I are going to hop in the car and we're going to road trip all around the U.S. And we're going to unpack deeper learning in elementary and middle schools. Oh, um, um, yes, because, you know, I want to go visit that cool, you know, kindergarten through fifth grade school that's doing really neat stuff with kids. I want to go visit that amazing middle school that's, you know, lighting kids on fire and they're doing stuff out in the community. And so I'm going to really unpack K-8 here uh, in the spring. And then there'll be, you know, of course, books and whatever else come out of that. It's going to be pretty oh, fun. Oh, that sounds wonderful. So I've got a big year ahead. I'm excited. Yeah. And I take it those two podcasts we can get through your uh, your blog, right? Yes, yes. Um, we'll get those launched here in the spring and there'll be links for my blog for sure. Perfect. Great. Scott, thank you so much for spending the time with us. It's always such a pleasure. And again, I want to remind our audience, the two books that we uh, focused on, Harnessing Technology for Deeper Learning, Connected to the Four Shifts Protocol, and Leadership for Deeper Learning, where Scott talks to uh, 28 different leaders from deeper learning schools. And uh, of course, don't forget dangerouslyirrelevant.org is Scott's uh, blog. Highly recommend uh, spending time on there. It's always very inspiring. Scott, thank you so much. Uh, I will definitely want to try to catch up with you after your road trip 
with your wife and dog and uh, those deeper learning primary schools. That would be really interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, John. I appreciate the invite. And, you know, to everybody who's listening, if there's any way I can be of support, reach out. John can tell you that I, you know, I'm pretty responsive. Try to help everybody I can. So I can say that. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Be careful. He will respond to your emails and very quickly. So uh, definitely take advantage of that kind offer from Scott McLeod. Thank you.